0: In Job 32, we were introduced to another person that we, has been watching and listening that we had no idea was there in the midst of this dialogue that has gone on between Job's three friends. And Job, his name is Elihu and after Job and the three friends have inaccurately explained how God runs the world and the things by which God uh, says about suffering, Elihu now takes his turn, and he is now teaching Job and teaching the audience about God and how God runs the world. Uh, in looking at Elihu, we've spent some time talking about the challenge of understanding his words. Is he speaking what is right and representing God properly, or is he? speaking wrong and should be lumped in like the three friends and uh, quite a bit of discussion back and forth that you have amongst scholars in that but ultimately I think well, the thing that should solve that concern would be that Elihu is the only person who is not required to repent of the things that were said and uh, that should be very weighty to us when you come to the end of the book that God doesn't come to Elihu and say oh and you too you didn't say what was right of me instead he is the only one that is not somebody who has spoken improperly of God and so with that we have been looking at Elihu's words and we've been considering the ways that he describes how God runs the world as instructive to understanding suffering and understanding trials and understanding what God is doing and we saw how Elihu began last week in chapters 32 and 33 where in that first speech we see that Elihu declares that God is speaking through suffering and he's teaching people in particular Job as he's mentioned so that we are kept from falling into the pit that suffering is to be considered in essence a grace of God that awakens our eternal considerations and causes us to think about spiritual things. We've observed and considered many times that it's not through the good times and in prosperity that we think about our eternal souls and think about God, but it is in difficulty, it is in trial, and that's why you have James and 1 Peter and so many other places that speak about suffering and difficulty being the refining of faith, that these things are given to us by God to uh, cause us to seek after Him to cause us to consider our faith and to then mold us and make us into what God wants us to be. In essence, God allows suffering in the world to awaken our spiritual affections so that we would seek the Lord. After giving that first speech, and you remember at the end of chapter 33, you have Elihu saying to Job, if you have any rebuttal, go right ahead. Feel free to speak if you have something to say about those things. And we've grown accustomed to Job responding when that opportunity comes along. After every single friend speaks, Job has a rebuttal disagreeing with what that friend has said. But you're not the case Elihu has given his first first speech. Job remains silent. He has nothing to say to those things, which then allows Elihu to continue on. We're going to look at the rest of Elihu's words tonight. And again, it's difficult to uh, encapsulate all of these chapters, four chapters, in only the time that we have. And so we'll hit a lot of the highlights that we see Elihu saying and the important concepts that he teaches about suffering, about how God runs the world and what we can learn from that. So if you turn your attention to Job chapter 34, Job chapter 34, and we'll begin then with just the first nine verses. Job 34, Then Elihu answered and said, "'Hear my words, you wise men, and give ear to me, you who know, for the ear tests words as a palate tastes food.'" Let us choose what is right. Let us know among ourselves what is good. For Job has said, I am in the right, and God has taken away my right. In spite of my right, I am counted a liar. My wound is incurable, though I am without transgression. What man is like Job who drinks up scoffing like water, who travels in company with evildoers and walks with wicked men? For he has said, it profits a man nothing that he should take delight in God. have a lot to work with right there. Because Elihu, and some of the things he says is one of the reasons why some people think you should disregard Elihu, because he begins to sound like the three friends now at this moment. And so let's consider what Elihu now is saying. I think it's important to observe again, you will notice that Elihu's speech is not like the three friends' speech yet again. That Elihu does not say, well, it's because of your past sins, and here's all the things that you must have done wrong in your past. And that's why you're suffering. Notice again that Elihu does what he did in chapter 32. He says, here's what I heard you say, Job. Here's the words that you said, and it is by these words that you're going to be condemned. And he points out two things that Job has said. One, we have seen Job utter this concept many, many times that God is not just. He's constantly been pointing to that, even though he still expects God's justice He has said that God is not just, and you see that there in verse 5 that I am in the right and God has taken away my right. Some translations even say taken away my justice, that you are not right. God has not acted appropriately or justly or rightly before Job. And Elohim was quoting Job accurately in that. You'll notice in verse nine, the other quotation he takes from Job when he says, therefore he says, it profits a man nothing that he should take delight in God. Job said that also. He looked at life. And said, what does it matter if we serve God or not? It's of zero benefit to a human because he's been righteous and blameless and upright. And look at what's happened to him. And so what is the point of being righteous? What is the point of doing good if this is going to be the outcome? Now, I want us to consider what is Elihu basically doing? And here's where I think Elihu is different than the three friends because not only is he not accusing Job and saying, well, it's because of your past actions and your sinful past that all of this... Suffering has come upon you. When you read verses 7 and 8, you think, well, boy, he just sounds like Eliphaz, right? What man is like Job who drinks of scoffing like water and travels in the company of evildoers and walks with evil men? But don't stop reading. Why does Elihu say that's what you're doing? Verse 9, Because he said it profits a man nothing that he should take delight in God. What Elihu is saying is, you're talking like the wicked people. When you say things like that, that God is not just, that He has taken away my right, and that in spite of my right, I'm counted as a liar, And even though I'm without transgression, it profits a man nothing that in benefiting or in serving him in the slightest it does me any good whatsoever. Elihu says, by saying those words... That's what the wicked sound like. In fact, if you jump forward to the very end of this chapter, you'll notice that's the point he makes again in verse 36. Would that Job were tried to the end. Why? Because he answers like wicked men. This is what Elihu is saying. It's, it is your words that are in the wrong. You sound like what wicked people would say. The words that you're expressing would put you then in the camp of the wicked. And I think it was important to recognize how right Elihu is in that if we remember how all of this started. All of this begins with God telling Satan, here is my servant Job. He's blameless and upright. He fears God and turns away from evil. And Satan put a challenge down and said, there's only one reason why people serve you. Because of what they get. Does Job serve God for nothing is the question that Satan responds. And that's what begins all of this. Is Does Job serve God for nothing? Notice what Elihu has said about what Job has done. If Job's response is this in verse 9, it profits a man nothing that he should take delight in God. Elihu's going, this is what this whole book has been about is Satan has said that's the only reason people serve God is for the benefit they receive out of it. And he says, if that is the angle you are going to approach God, then you speak like wicked people. You speak just like the wicked and are counted in that way. And so what Job has done is wrongly accuse God of not rewarding those who are obedient to Him. This is why he says, God has taken away my Right. What right or justice is Job referring to? Except that I have lived a righteous life and I'm not enjoying the physical, tangible benefits of such. You've taken away my right. Therefore, there's no profit to serving God or taking delight in Him. You've taken those things away from me. And so Job is wrongly now accusing God and saying, well, you don't reward those who are obedient to you. And we'll see this as we look at this lesson tonight and look at the words of Elihu, that this is exactly what Elihu now is spending his time talking about are these two points. Job has said that God is not just And Job has said that there's no benefit in the righteous serving God. And we're going to see Elihu just take on those two things in the rest of his speech and drive this home to say, that's not right. And here's the reasons why. So you'll notice from verse 10, then what Elihu then does is he deals with the justice of God that we have seen Job challenge again and again. And you notice that in verse 10, therefore, hear me, you men of understanding, far be it from, God that he should do wickedness and from the almighty that he should do wrong for according to the work of a man he will repay and according to his ways he will make it befall him of a truth God will not do wickedly and the almighty will not pervert justice notice what what Elihu just asserts God is just You keep saying that God's not just, that He's taken away your right, that somehow God is in the wrong. And Job, if you just had your chance to stand before God and express your your righteousness, that God would be found wrong and He would sort all this out. And here is Elihu going, you can't say that God perverts justice. God is just without exception. He always does what is right. I mean, if we were to be theological, consider He defines what is right by what He does. I mean, it's not even a case of, well, did He do what is right or wrong? Whatever God does is right. And so He defines that righteousness. And so that's what we're getting here from Elohim was, of course He does right. And therefore He answers to no one. Verse 13, Who gave Him charge over the earth and who laid on Him the whole world if He should set His heart to it and gather to Himself His spirit and His breath, all flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. Who is going to go before God and say, you're not running the world right? Well, we have a lot of people who try to do that. But Elihu is saying, you don't get to do that. Who is accountable that God would say, well, I am accountable to this person for how I've done things no one and that's the whole point that he's getting at who are you Job to go to God and say you're doing things wrong and that's what verses 16 through 20 he continues in describing this and saying who is going to come before him and say such things he uses illustrations verse 17 shall one who hates justice govern will you condemn him who is righteous and mighty who says a king to a king worthless one and to nobles wicked men who shows no partiality to princes or regard the rich more than the poor, for they are all the work of His hands. And a the moment they die, at midnight the people are, are shaken and pass away, and the mighty are taken away by no human hand. What human can come before God and say, you're not doing it right? How can you possibly say, Job, that God is not just? How can you possibly go before Him and say, That God has not treated you fairly or properly or rightly, that you are not getting what you deserve based on your righteousness. It is not because God doesn't know what's going on. Verses 21 through 25. And I think that's important to observe. Verse 21. For his eyes are on the ways of man. And he sees all of his steps. One of the things that Job has insinuated is clearly God has not seen what's going on with me. That's why he wants to make his appeal to God. If I could just find him and make my appeal to him, he would hear my case and I would be proven right. And Elihu goes, You don't think he knows what's going on? You don't think he's aware of the situation? You think that his eyes are not on the ways of the steps of all mankind? Of course it is. And he makes the point, of course, God is going to deal with the wicked. This is one of the difficulties that Job and the three friends have had back and forth where Job is looking around and saying, all I see are wicked people. I see wicked prosper all the time. How can you say the wicked get their just reward? And and Elihu confirms God is just and He will bring about a punishment upon the wicked. But the problem, Job is you can't say to God that God should respond on your terms. Verse 31. For has anyone said to God, I have borne punishment, I will not offend any more"? teach me what I do not see, if I have done iniquity, I will not do it no more. If he then makes repayment to suit you because you reject it, For you must choose and not I, therefore declare what you know. Are you going to come before God and say, this is how it's supposed to operate. These are the terms by which I have come before you. This is what you need to do in my life. And this is such an important question that that Elihu drives at here to say, should God answer us on our terms? Should God act for us on our terms? Should God judge on our terms? Should God reward on our terms? I think probably one of the times we come into the conflict of that the most is in prayer. Should God answer prayer on our terms? We have all kinds of things by which we function with God and say, God, you need to do it by my terms, in my time frame, according to my wisdom. And so, act on my terms, reward on my terms, judge on my terms, answer my prayer by my terms. You need to do something. And Elihu's going, really? Really? Are you really going to take that stance before God and say that God must operate on your terms? And that's why I love how he ends up in verse 33. You, for you must choose and not I. You decide. You decide if that's the way it's going to be. And therefore what Elihu does is he realms out this speech and says, that's why the trial needs to continue because suffering and trials and difficulties are for learning and it is time that you need to learn these things and be aware of these things. And that's what we've observed in the last lesson we've talked about many times in our study of Job, is that these things are here for learning. They're here purposefully, that the three friends are wrong in saying that the only reason that suffering comes is because you must have done something wrong. That is inaccurate. The three friends are wrong in that. But Elohim has made the point that suffering does teach. Pain teaches, distress teaches, and Job, you are in a trial right now and you need to learn from the trial and the things that you have said about God are not right and therefore you must learn. He amplifies that in chapter 35 and what he does in chapter 35 is really a beautiful picture of turning the tables back on Job for some of the things that Job has said. We notice back in chapter 34, verse 9, that Job has said, well, it doesn't profit a person to serve God or to desire God. What's the point in being righteous if this is the outcome? So why bother with these things? And what you will notice is that what Elihu does is he turns the tables now on Job and reverses them. Thirty-five, Chapter 35, verse 1. And Elihu answered and said, Do you think this to be just? Do you say, it is my right before God that you ask, what advantage have I? How am I better off than if I had sinned? I will answer you and your friends with you. Look at the heavens and sea and behold the clouds which are higher than you. If you have sinned, what do you accomplish against him? And if your transgressions are multiplied, what do you do to him? If you are righteous, what do you give to him? Or what does he receive from your hand? Your wickedness concerns a man like yourself and your righteousness a son of man. Now again, we've talked about things that Elihu says can frequently sound like Eliphaz. That does right there as well but the context is quite different because he says now Job you say verse 3 how am I better off than if I had sinned so notice again why bother serving God what's the advantage of me being righteous I might as well live my life sin away do whatever I want because I don't receive any tangible benefit and what Elihu does is he just reverses the tables and says If that's the way we're going to operate in life, then what advantage does God get from you? I mean, if we're going to live life on the premise of I'm only going to operate on what God will do for me, then how would that work for us if God says, well, what are you doing for me? What advantage do I get from all this? And what he's showing is the illogical nature of such a thought. How can you come before God and say, what do I get out of this? God doesn't owe us anything. And that's why he's using this illustration this way. God doesn't owe us a thing. All of our righteousness does not compel God to act. I think sometimes we feel that way. Oh my goodness, and I'm better than all those other people. and I do right and I do good and all those things. And we think, well, God has to respond to me now. We're back to on my terms, right? Because I'm righteous. Why does God have to do anything? As if he owes us anything, Job. As if because you were blameless and upright and fears God and turns away from evil, that God must now act on your terms, that somehow you have put God in your debt. Of course not. Of course not. And so therefore, Elihu just continues. And what he does is he challenges the reason why people cry out to God. Notice verse 9, chapter 35. Because of the multitude of oppression, people cry out. They call for help because of the arm of the mighty. But none says, where is the God, is God my maker who gives songs in the night, who teaches us more than the beasts of the earth and makes us wiser than the birds of the heavens? There they cry out, but he does not answer because of the pride of evil men. Surely God does not hear an empty cry, nor does the Almighty regard it. Notice what he does. He says, you know what? People all the time cry out to God. I said, you know what? That's quite true. (laughs) There's all kinds of people who cry out to God in their distress and in their suffering and oh, things are going bad. And now suddenly you cry out to God. But notice what he says. And he says there in verse nine, people cry out for multitudes of oppressions. Verse 10, but none says, where is God my maker? Nobody has an interest in God. What do they have an interest in? alleviate my pain stop my discomfort make my life comfortable again and he distinguishes then between the cry of the righteous and the cry of the wicked the wicked cry out to God all the time yes yes but why are they crying out to God to alleviate the pain we're actually seeing that in Job right I mean in Jeremiah right why would the people cry out? Well, now all the destruction's coming. Do they care about God? Not the slightest. So what does God say? I'm not listening to those prayers. I'm not going to hear it. And that's what here even Elihu himself says. Verse 13, surely God does not hear an empty cry. And he's not going to listen to those things. He's not going to be concerned about those things. And so the point that he gets at again is, Job, you sound like the wicked when you speak like this. When you say, what advantage is it to me? What is the point of me doing this? He's saying, you're not seeking God for God. You're seeking God to alleviate your suffering, to alleviate your discomfort. And this is an important picture that Elihu brings to Job's attention. In fact, you'll notice that he basically says, Elihu tells Job, you can't expect God to help you when you're attacking God with your words the way that you are. You turn around and say, God is not just. And if I had my opportunity to stand before him, I would be able to put him in the right and set things straight. Then you turn around and think, God's going to rescue you in this? Why would you assume that? And so Elihu again makes a very valuable argument in speaking about the concept of what Job has done a mistake about. So verse 16, Job opens his mouth in empty talk. Again, notice it's the words that are being challenged again. The things that you have said, Job, you have gone too far in those words and you are held in account for those, those kinds of things. Which leads now to a practical concept to Job and to his suffering in chapter 36. Because now what Elohim was going to do is he's going to teach Job that there are basically two options when it comes to suffering. You'll notice it here in verse 5 of chapter 36. Behold, God is mighty and does not despise any. He is mighty in strength and understanding. He does not keep the wicked alive, but gives the afflicted their right. He does not withdraw His eyes from the righteous, but with kings on the throne He sets them forever and they are exalted. And if they are bound in chains and caught in cords of affliction, then He declares to them their work and their transgressions, that they are behaving arrogantly. He opens their ears to instruction and commands that they return from their iniquity. If they listen and serve him, they complete their days in prosperity and their years are in pleasantness. But if they do not listen, they perish by the sword and die without knowledge. And then he goes on to describe some more about how the wicked deal with suffering. And you'll notice that what he's doing is saying, so when suffering comes, there really are two options that it boils down to. You can either have suffering come, and you can seek after God. You can turn your heart to Him, and as Elihu has already made the point, pain and suffering and distress has that learning characteristic to it, that we would pay attention spiritually, that we would turn our eyes to God. He says the righteous would do that. But there is also another option. And the other option is to sin all the more. And he says, that is the choice that is put before us. If they do not listen, they will perish by, by the sword. And so notice verse 13, the God, the godless in heart cherish anger. They do not cry out for help when he binds them. They die in youth and their life ends among the cult prostitutes. He delivers the afflicted by their affliction and he opens their ear by adversity He also allured you out of distress into a broad place where there was no cramping and what was set before your table was full of fatness. Ultimately, we would all like to think that we are righteous and that we would always choose the righteous path. But how do you know? And this is what the whole scene between God and Satan has been about, right? Right? God says, I bless my people. I care for them. I do good by them. They are righteous. Satan says, you know what you've done by doing that? You basically have made a bunch of mercenaries who serve God for themselves. You put a hedge around him, take the hedge down, take away the blessings, rip all that away from him, and he won't serve anymore. How will you know if you will serve God for nothing? Unless you go through suffering. And that's what's being brought out here. Because you have one of two options. You can either continue to serve God in the face of suffering and trial and loss. Or you can turn to sin as your solution to your troubles. He says the wicked just go on sinning. The wicked continue in their adversity. But others, he says he opens their ear by their adversity. So many times the scriptures give us pictures like that. It's hard to say these words. You know, I don't know that I could ever say what Psalm 119 says with a great smile on my face. It was good for me to suffer that I might learn your statutes. But this is the argument that James and Peter... And Job and the psalmist here are making that point. This is how we grow. This is how we learn. This is how we know what our faith is made of, but through our suffering. And so he says, here is the picture given to you, Job. What will be your response in your suffering? What will you do when the trial comes? How will you respond? Will you handle your suffering and your trial by turning to sin? Oh how many people When times get tough When trials and Certainly severe trials strike And their response Is to turn away from God That's their answer Their answer is essentially The words that Elihu was quoting If this is what becomes of the righteous Then what profit is it for me to desire God Why should I bother And Elihu's point is That's not the righteous That's not the way the righteous contend. They serve God in the face of suffering, in the face of difficulty. We got to look at that this morning with the Apostle Paul who is distressed and persecuted and all these things. And what does he say? I'm not stopping. Bring it on, whatever it takes. You can put Paul and Silas together in prison. They're just going to sing some songs. They're just going to keep going. It just doesn't matter. They're going to go and they're going to go and they're going to go. How will we handle our suffering? What will we do when that suffering comes upon us? The question is so important because the New Testament regularly challenges us with that. Because our common reaction to suffering is sin. Verses 12 through 21 of Job 36 is really all about that and challenging that. But we see to the New Testament, here's the writer of Hebrews as he exhorts in his sermon to his listeners. And he says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. He says, when they were in the wilderness, they were put to the test. And he says, here's what I want you not to do. Don't harden your heart when you're put to the test. Listen to my voice and don't harden your heart which is what the writer of Hebrews would go on to argue about how they fell in the wilderness. Don't harden your heart in the day of testing. Wicked people turn to sin. But he challenges Job in verse 21 and tells them, you make sure you don't do that. You need to take care. Verse 21, take care. Do not turn to iniquity. For this you have chosen rather than affliction to say that God is not just. To say that it does not profit a person to serve God. You have chosen the wrong path. When you say those words, you sound like the wicked. Don't choose iniquity. Don't choose sin when you do that. In fact, in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your trial, listen to verse 22. Behold, God is exalted in his power. Who is a teacher like him? This is an important lens for suffering. I'm going to just spend a whole other sermon right here. We'll just do it on Wednesday night when we get there. Elihu's declaration is suffering teaches, pain teaches, we learn, it makes our spiritual awareness turn on as we think about spiritual things and become more aware of our faith. And Elihu says, who's a teacher like God? Who is going to teach you any better to make your faith what it needs to be than God? And that's what a trial does. And that's what suffering does. And Job has basically said, as the words are, are, are found in here, to be able to say, well, I, I've learned my lesson. I'm done. Go ahead and turn the trial off. I got it. I got it. That's what I want to do in a trial. Okay, I've learned my lesson, Lord. I got it. Okay, I got it. I got it. Stop. Make it stop. Ellie's is going, you're not the teacher. And God, who is a better teacher than him? Let the suffering, let the trial do its work. That's what Paul says, Peter, James, again, let it be its perfecting work. Let it bring you to maturity. Let it bring you to completion. Let it do its work in you. Don't choose sin. Don't choose evil. Learn from this. What is God doing to refine my faith, to move me to what God has called me to be? That brings us then into really a beautiful finale that comes in at the end of chapter 36 and it leads into chapter 37 from chapter 36 verse 24 on to the end of the live speech you have him basically proclaiming the majesty of God he simply describes the, the might and the power of God I, I would beg you to go home and read these paragraphs and just listen to the beauty of what Elihu just describes of God's majesty and glory as you can see it in the creation. I would like to just observe a couple of them with you, two of my personal favorites, and there may be different ones in these descriptions of the creation that show the majesty of God that resonate with you more than these, but but to me these resonate greatly with me. Chapter 36, verse 32. Speaking about God, He covers His hands with the lightning and commands it to strike the mark. Its crashing declares His presence. The cattle declare His. Me, the cattle also declare that He rises. At this, also, my heart trembles and it leaps out of place. Keep listening to the thunder of His voice and the rumbling that comes from His mouth. Under whole heaven, He lets it go and is lightning to the corners of the earth. After his voice roars, he thunders with his majestic voice and he does not restrain the lightnings when his voice is heard. He thunders wondrously with his voice. He does great things that we cannot comprehend. What a picture that Elihu just says When you hear the thunder, it's the booming voice of God who is able to put his hands around the lightning and cast it where he wants. Just describing the majesty of God. And I love the imagery in verse 1 at this my heart trembles it leaps out of its place who has not had a thunderstorm come over and is this right on top of you and boom and you go whoo he just scares you right out of your chair and he says at this my heart just leaps your heart just stops and he says that's just the voice of god the immensity of his power that you just go whoa do you understand the majesty of he does it again in chapter 37 and verse 21. I love his, this picture as well. Really, again, as I said, all these paragraphs are beautiful. The majesty of God. Verse 21, and now no one looks on the sun when it is bright in the skies, when the wind has passed and cleared dead. It just says, here's another picture of the majesty of God. Try to look at that big light up there and just stare at it and see how that goes. Just try to stare into the sun to get a picture of the majesty of God. Do you understand His power that we can't even behold something? that What is that thing like? Eight gazillion miles away? And we can't even begin to look at it. It's amazing what God has done, the majesty of that. And that's why Elihu, as he rounds out this teaching of Job, is basically saying, Is your God too small? What is your perception of God? Because friends, when we desire deliverance and desire our comforts, the only reason we have any concern for God is that, well, I just am uncomfortable and I'm suffering, I'm in pain, so God help me out and make me feel better. I'm going to go back on to my merry ways. Rather than desiring God, your God's too small. You just don't see God. If all you use God for is to be your genie in the bottle to save you from your discomforts that you have in this life. He tells Job and says, the wicked do that. The wicked are in it for getting God to stop the suffering. And then they go back to their sinning. The righteous desire God. The righteous behold the glory of God and they desire Him. Not His stopping of the pain. In the midst of your trials, don't sin. Friends, our God is too small. If we look at our pain and our discomfort and we think in the midst of our trials and in all of our weariness and in all of the suffering and all of the loss and all of the heartache, that the answer, the solution, the thing that will soothe that pain and fill that void is going to be sin. You don't understand God if you think sin is going to be the thing that's going to help. You do not grasp who God is and what He can do for you when you reach to sin to be the answer for your pain. God is the answer to your pain. God is the answer for your suffering. Your God is too small if you do not see Him as your solution. Number three, do we serve God for nothing? Mm -hmm. If the only reason we are in this is for what we get out of it, as long as I have my blessings, I will serve God, but take it all the way I'm out, then your God is too small. If it's just about tangible benefits, and friends, as I've tried to allude to and directly state, I think we will be challenged more and more about this in our future, about being Christians in public to this world, and there are going to be consequences for doing so. Do we serve God for nothing? And we recognize it's fine if we lose it all. It's fine if we deal with loss. It's fine if we lose possessions. It's fine if we lose friends. It's fine if we are considered hated and and cast out. It's fine because God is everything. If we don't see God that way, then our God is too small. We're in it for our own reputation. We're in it for our own comfort. We're in it for our wealth. We're in it for something else. Your God is too small, is what Elihu was saying to Job. Finally, don't forget to look at God and look at His majesty when suffering. What an ending that Elihu has. When you're in the midst of your pain and when you're in the midst of that loss and the heartache and the distress and that suffering, keep God large in your heart and large in your mind. By just choosing something of creation and going, do you see how amazing God is? Look at the sun. Consider the thunder. Look at the things God does. He uses snow in here. I didn't think that would be relevant for any of us in here, so I didn't go with snow. He talks about snow in here. That's a foreign concept to us. (laughs) There's so many beautiful things about creation that Elihu uses in here to describe. Can you imagine what God does with all of that and that we would see the beauty of God in that. This is why James can write his letter and he begins it by simply saying, friends, in the midst of trials, you can count it all joy because you know, you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Suffering has a purpose. God is the teacher. Let it have its perfect work. Let it change you so that God is not too small in your faith and in your heart. We'll sing a song now and we invite you...